0: It is uh, my great pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Dan Seidel, has his PhD from the University of Iowa, former curator of the University Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, Uh, grew up in Lincoln. He and his wife Carrie now and their kids, one uh, post-college in Lincoln, uh, one in college in New York City and another still in high school uh, there in uh, the area of South uh, Florida. We're heavy on South Florida this year, uh, so uh, we're delighted to have you. Uh, In addition to uh, preaching over the next three days, uh, Dr. Seidel will be with us tonight for a panel discussion on faith and modern art, and then he'll be leading a gallery tour Thursday night over by the Alice Stevens Theater at the University of Alabama at Birmingham And so I would encourage you uh, to be a part of that. If you want to get more details, you can uh, check out our website and that will flesh it out for you. We look forward to hearing Dr. Seidel bring a word to us after we stand and sing hymn number 693, verses 1, 2, and 5.
1: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It is a pleasure to be here, but not a little bit intimidating. I don't preach for a living, nor do I work for a church. I'm an art critic. That is, I look at and think about paintings. Sometimes I talk about them in classrooms and in museums, and at times I will write about them. I also spend a lot of time with artists in their studios as well as working with them on publishing projects and exhibitions. I'm not sure how many art critics have stood in this pulpit to preach over the course of its 130-year history. What What I have to say to you today and over the course of the next few days from this pulpit has, however, been hewn through a life devoted to and lived in the service of the vulnerable fragile and grace-filled practice of smearing smelly pigments across scraps of canvas. Now, The Lenten season is the season for doing more spiritual things—getting up earlier for devotions, going to church more often, taking in a noon-hour sermon or educational program, and perhaps cutting back on sweets or social media. And so during this time, when we prepare for the celebration of the death and resurrection of our Lord, we are even more susceptible to do what we as human beings seem bent on doing, and that is turning the gospel into the law, grace into obligation, freedom into guilt and shame. I hope to help you to resist this temptation. Today I'd like to focus on one of Jesus' most misunderstood parables— the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. Like so many of Jesus' other parables, this story is easily read as a morality tale. We're like the Duchess in Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, who declares to Alice, everything's got a moral. If only you can find it. We try to squeeze every last drop of moral lessons from every story, painting, film, or other cultural artifact. And so before I continue, let me read the parable for you. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. The virgins who were ready went in and with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. This is the word of the Lord. The moral is obvious enough. Get ready. Make sure you have your oil to light your lamps. Be prepared. Do the diligent work. Be industrious. Don't be lazy. Now, Jesus does tell us to be alert, to be watchful. In Luke 12, verse 40, the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asks his disciples to pray with him, but he has to wake them up not once, but twice. If we're honest with ourselves, these words of Jesus do not feel like grace to us. They feel like law. You better be prepared. Don't be lazy. Don't waste time. And we picture Jesus saying this like a parent wagging his finger at us. And so the question that must come to you and to me when we hear this and other parables like it is, which are we, the wise or the foolish ones? In order to answer that question and deal with the nagging feeling that Jesus is doing the opposite of making our burdens light and our loads easy, I want to spend some time with the parable itself. It is a story that is deceptively enigmatic and mysterious, revealing that it is something other than a morality tale, revealing something both more terrifying and more wonderful about the God of this gospel. Let's follow Martin Luther's guidance through some of the details Luther reminds us that these are virgins. All ten are those whom the bridegroom is courting. It's not as if five show up and then the other five show up. They go out together, and we can't tell which are prepared and which are not. All ten have lamps. They're going out to wait. Luther says the lamp is the outward appearance of preparedness. They seem to be ready, all of them. Inside the lamp... Generates the flame, and it's invisible. The jar of oil generates the flame, and that is faith. How did the wise virgin, virgins get the jars of oil? We only know that they have them. We assume that they were industrious and got it themselves, but that is only an extrapolation based on what the foolish virgins do in response to not having oil. Paul asks in one of his letters to the Corinthian church, what do you have that you have not received? In the scriptures, oil is only received. It is only applied. It is only given. And who is the giver of the oil? God is always the giver of the oil. Psalm 23, you anointed my head with oil. 2 Kings 4, verses 1 through 7, the incredible story of Elisha and the widow, widow, which there are limitless jars of oil to sell. Luther sees the flame as the Holy Spirit, the light of faith, the shining glory of God. Israel is a light unto the nations. It is the light of God's love for the world, and faith is the oil that allows the flame to burn. Our intuitive reading of the parable, a reading I would suggest honors the old Adam, is that the foolish ones are the 90 percenters. They go most of the way, but they can't close it out. They've got some character defect, an addiction, or something that keeps them from being completely prepared. So we read the story as God saying to us, Buckle down, do more, do it earlier, try harder, and be more prepared. And that is what our culture and many of our churches tell us in a hundred different ways be ready. God chooses the wise, the industrious, the practical, and the pragmatic among us. But the problem is, as it relates to the God who comes to us, we are never ready. I recall a few years ago when my grandfather passed away, my grandmother confessed to the family at the funeral. They had been married for 65 years. And she said, I thought we were going to have a long life together. We are never ready. So let's return to the parable. The bridegroom tarries. The bridegroom waits. He doesn't come immediately. And so we think he's forgotten about us. God and Moses spend some extra time together, and the Israelites make a golden calf. Jesus takes a while in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the disciples doze off. And we fear that this tarrying, this waiting, is abandonment. And so we rush to fill this holy silence, this divine passivity, which is God's activity with our own activity, with our own stuff. By the way, tomorrow we'll look at another expression of this divine tarrying. It is God, however, and not the virgins, that is the subject of this parable. God may be absent, but he's working, and working on their behalf. His absence, his tarrying, his lateness is divine grace and mercy and patience. His waiting is neither punishment nor torture. And so they wait. And we wait. And they drop off to sleep. Now sleep gets a bad rap in our culture. It's unproductive. It's a badge of honor to say you are sleep-deprived because you're working so very hard. Sleep has also become symbolic of irrationality and vice because we lose control. Goya's famous etching, the sleep of reason, is something that shapes how we think of sleep. Morality and virtue is a matter of being awake, alert, always mentally, cognitively, intellectually awake, so we can do, be active, just do it. And we impose this view of sleep onto the scriptures. But sleep is something much more positive in the scriptures. God can actually do something with us and get something done once we're asleep. He can finally get through to us, He even makes us new creatures. Why do we hate sleep? It reveals our weakness, it's a little death. And God kills in order to make alive. God grows the crops when we sleep. When we sleep, we stop trying to control the world. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.7, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Jesus says, Stay alert. But we can't. Peter says to Jesus, I'm ready and prepared to defend you to the death. And Jesus says, Oh, you won't. The tribes of Israel tell Joshua that they'll obey all God's commandments. And Joshua says, You won't. To return to our parable, both the wise and the foolish virgins are sleeping. No one stays awake. That is... No one is busy doing stuff for the bridegroom. Both groups drop off. I'd like to conclude our reflection on the details of this parable with some thoughts on what happens when the bridegroom arrives. Now, we might find the wise virgins to be a bit haughty and selfish by denying these poor, foolish virgins help. But Luther reminds us that faith is not something that is shared. The Enlightenment-era writer J.G. Haman Observe that faith is is not bought and sold like merchandise. The virgins cry out like the parable of the sheep and the goats, Lord, Lord, but then they do not say, have mercy on me. They point to what they've done or tried to do. Instead of begging for mercy, they run out to buy the oil, treating it merely as merchandise, something to be bought, borrowed, and sold. Not unlike the magician in the book of Acts who happens upon the disciples' miracles and his response was not, praise God, but I want to buy that trick. Again, we are not told how the five virgins received their oil, but they have it. Those that don't are the ones that are treating it like merchandise to be purchased, bartered, or borrowed. So what does God demand? What pleases God? Psalm 51 says, a broken and contrite heart. A heart that casts all on the mercy of the Lord. Not a heart that obsesses in what is done or left undone. A broken and contrite heart is, of course, the expression of the one who already has been given the oil. So let's return to our question. Which one are you? Are you wise or foolish? Of course, I hope by now you know that this is the wrong question. This is the question that the old Adam asks, the old Adam that needs to do lists during the Lenten season to get up earlier for devotions and stay up later for evening prayers, that runs out to buy oil and curses themselves for not being industrious enough. As if the bridegroom simply wants us to be more productive, efficient, and the foolishness of the virgins is due to the fact that they they simply didn't buy the oil earlier. So if we're never really ready, what does being ready look like for the new Adam? Not working, but waiting. Not preparing, being still. In the Gospel of John, Jesus' disciples ask him, What must we do to be doing the will of God? And Jesus' response is, Believe in the one he has sent. Believe. Believe the promises of God. Have faith that God will indeed have mercy on you, that he has not forgotten you, that he is coming no matter the time, no matter the circumstances, and that he is for you. That is your oil, and it cannot be purchased. It can only be given by the one whose words create faith and the one by whose words we live and breathe. In the Bible, God comes to men and women and they despair, but God says, Do not be afraid. He says to the drowsy disciples at Gethsemane, Let's go. He tells Peter, You will feed my sheep. And he tells us, And lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the age and i will never leave you nor forsake you and god can say this because in jesus he comes to die for you not to shut the door on your face the bridegroom comes to save not to judge so what else does waiting look like it can look like anything and everything looking at art or even like Naaman in Second Kings, which we'll look at on Friday, taking an elderly king to the pagan temple for worship. Sometimes, though, it may even look like sleeping. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.